Welcome to another installment of the Phenotips Speaker Series. A warm welcome to our new and returning viewers and listeners. Thank you all for tuning in. We're excited to have another great talk and Q&A session lined up for you today. I'm your host, Dr. Pavel Buchkovich. I'm the Chief Operating Officer and VP of Scientific and Medical Affairs at Phenotips. Phenotips, uh, the world's first genomic health record system, is a software and service that makes genetic professionals' workflows easy and intuitive and incorporates features such as pedigree drawing, standardized symptom capture using the human phenotype ontology, and insights such as differential diagnosis and gene suggestions. Since electronic health records aren't built for genetics, Phenotips fills in the gaps by providing a complete suite for genetic medicine. In light of the pandemic, Phenotips has been sponsoring this speaker series. The format of the webinar will be a 45-minute presentation followed by questions from the audience until uh, about the top of the hour. You'll be able to submit your questions throughout the uh, presentation in the Zoom uh, Q&A box uh, at the bottom of your screen. Our speaker today is Dr. Damien Smedley. Dr. Smedley is a professor of computational genomics at Queen Mary University of London. Dr. Smedley received his Bachelor of Science in Biochemistry from Bristol University, followed by a PhD in Biochemistry uh, at Cambridge University. He then went on to do a postdoctoral fellowship as a key Kendall Research Fellow at the Institute of Cancer Research and Imperial College, where he studied chromosomal translocations in hematological cancers. He then went on to pursue a master's in bioinformatics, so in a purely computational research setting at Birkbeck College. Working with the European Bioinformatics Institute, or EBI, he continued, uh, uh, he contributed to the development of Biomart software. While at EBI, Dr. Smedley also founded and led the mouse informatics team. He then moved on to the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute, where as a senior scientific manager was involved in the mouse genetics program and the International Mouse Phenotyping Consortium. In 2016, he joined William Harvey Research Institute as a senior lecturer, where he continues to work on the International Mouse Phenotyping Consortium, as well as the development of the popular and widely used Eximizer package, which we'll hear a little bit about today as well, for phenotype-aware analysis of rare disease genomes. Dr. Smedley also has successful stint at Genomics England as the Director of Genomic Interpretation, helping to deliver the clinical analysis of rare disease and cancer samples as part of the 100,000 Genomes Project. We are very happy to have Dr. Smedley presenting for us today on the role of phenotyping in improving uh, diagnostic outcomes. Uh, Dr. Smedley, um, I will stop sharing my screen and you can Take it away. Hopefully everyone can see this. We can see your screen. Okay, well, many thanks for the invite and the kind introduction. So as Pavel said, I'm gonna talk about the role of phenotyping in improving the outcomes for rare disease patients. Uh, my team's based at Queen Mary University of London, but I still have honorary researcher roles at Genomics England and University College London. And I sort of spend one day a week with Congenica and looking to translate some of our software more into healthcare. So, so today I'm going to start off talking about how we sort of use phenotypes in my team to try and better understand human disease and particularly invariant prioritization. And then go on to the some of the work I've led at the 100,000 Genomes Project. And then towards the end, spend a good chunk of the talk talking about yeah, my pet interest was just how we can really solve all those unsolved cases that remain after running a whole genome sequencing pipeline. And finally, you know, some of the work to sort of translate this software from academia actually into healthcare. So starting um, with use of phenotypes, so the ethos of my team and sort of collaborators in the Monarch Initiative is really to try and make use of underutilized data to help in this needle in the haystack exercise of trying to find the cause of a rare disease patient's 
condition. So you're starting off with six million variants in the whole genome and trying to find the single variant or pair of variants that are causing that condition. And that's very challenging just using genomic data. So what we've spent most of our time doing is trying to add in phenotype data to help in this exercise. But we've got lots of future plans to sort of try and bring in other omics technology, technologies such as transcriptomics, and even like moving on to common disease in the future, bringing in environmental data. But for, for now, I'll be focusing on how we use phenotype data. So over the years, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on how these work, but over the years, we've developed a lot of semantic similarity technologies to be able to compare a patient's phenotypic profile. So that's shown here in the middle. With everything we know about human rare disease over here on the left, so we can compare like how similar these patients' phenotypes are to every um, human rare disease in OMIM and Orphanet. And also we can go cross species shown on the right to modern organisms. So we can compare how similar our patients' phenotypes are to particular mouse models. And the idea here is like, we know what genes have been knocked out in the mouse or what genes are associated with this disease. So we can use this information to try and work out what's the most likely gene that's involved in the patient's condition. And because we use ontologies, it has a number of advantages. So one of these is fuzzy matching. So for instance, it's probably quite hard to read, but the patient, this particular patient has microcephaly and we can automatically use the ontology to um, get a match with the disease, which is hyperplasia of the frontal lobes because both of these are aplasias or hyperplasias of the cerebrum. And the other thing these semantic sim similarity technologies give you is a score for how similar for this kind of patient is to this disease. So, you can imagine it as a sort of percentage similarity score, and we can use these to sort of rank candidates. So it's quite important to have these scores as well. And the reason we use model organisms rather than just human data is because for humans, we know what the phenotypic consequence is when the single gene is knocked out or mutated for some 4,000 genes. And this comes from what we know about Mendelian disease from OMIM and Orphanet. But if you start looking at model organisms such as the mouse, the fish, um, worm and fly, then we know a lot more about all these extra genes and putting it all together, we know what the phenotypic consequence is if a gene is disrupted for some 82% of the protein coding genes in human um, using orphology. So this means if we find an interesting variant, say in one of these genes that we, we know nothing about in human, we can still say something about it using this other species data and use it to prioritize variants. So I've also been involved since the inception as a, as a PI on the International Mass Phenotyping Consortium. So this kind of ties into this ontology work. So the IMPC is trying to produce the first functional catalog for a, a mammalian species. So what we're doing is systematically knocking out one gene at a time or out of each of the protein coding genes in a sort of very standardized way and similarly doing standardized phenotyping protocols on the mutated and wild type mice. So, so far we've knocked out and phenotyped some 7,600 protein coding genes. And one of the focuses of this is to concentrate on genes that we really don't know much about. So almost a third of these genes had no previous functional annotations and now we know something about them from producing mouse knockouts. As you can imagine, in my, my team particularly plays a role in sort of trying to link the mouse phenotype data to human disease data, trying to discover sort of new mouse models for known human diseases and novel disease genes. So we published this a few years ago now in Nature Genetics. So this is like the state of play after knocking out the first 3,000 genes. And we were able to do this automated pipeline to see how similar these mice where to human diseases associated with the same gene. And it sort of turned out this sort of worked pretty well. So we could like show in the IMPC, we had 360 Mendelian disease gene models that have been modeled by knocking out the mouse and producing the IMPC mouse and phenotyping them. And the majority of these were novel. So there was no previous mouse published in the literature. And we make these mice sort of available at kind of cost for researchers to order and do further mechanistic and therapeutic studies. So it's kind of very important to have these mice. Uh, 
and we found matches across all the biological systems so reflecting the breadth for the IMPC pipeline so we had like mass models involving bone disease gene cardiovascular um, hearing metabolic neurological and retinal for example and just give an example of one of these mice so this involves the bbss5 gene so this is one of 19 genes forming the bbs zone which is a big sort of protein complex and mutations in any one of these 19 genes can cause an autosomal recessive ciliopathy called bardet beadle syndrome and what we found when we produced the IMPC mouse by sort of producing a homozygous knockout of this gene, we found the same sort of retinal dystrophy phenotypes and obesity. So you can see clearly on the right, the knockout is much more obese than the wild type on the left. But we also found some additional phenotypes such as an impaired glucose homeostasis. So again, it'd be nice to sort of get back to the patients and see if similar phenotypes are seen in the patients and whether this could be a factor in their symptoms. Um, one of the other things we make use of in the IMPC portal is sort of widgets from the Monarch Initiative, such as Phenogrid. So Phenogrid is sort of a reusable tool produced by them. And what it allows you to do is enter a bunch of phenotypes shown here on the left um, on the y-axis. And then across the top, it shows all the possible matches for this set of phenotypes in terms of human disease or mouse models, et cetera, for all these different species. And the darker the blue, the more similar the match. And you can click on each of these squares when you're actually on the website and get extra information. So it's a very nice visualization of the matches. And then just to say something about the Monarch Initiative, because <clears throat> a lot of this work comes out of these the grants that fund the Monarch Initiative. So Monarch, one of the things it's trying to do is integrate data from numerous different sources. So some 23 different gene sources representing sequences, variants, morphology, seven different mechanistic sources, and 18 different phenotype and disease sources. And these span like from human to model organisms to like non-model organism species, you know, such as platypus, as well as genomic resources. And the sort of special thing that Monarch does is to integrate these using unifying ontologies. So for instance, for disease, it's got the Mondo ontology that links everything together. For phenotypes, Uberpheno links the phenotypes across species. And that, that's essentially the, yeah, the large, almost integrated database that's produced. And then all the Monarch tools are built on top of this, such as Eximizer, which I'm going to come to soon. Okay, so Eximizer, so just to give some of the history. So back when we were, I was like first working on the IMPC and developing these semantic similarity algorithms, we started to collaborate with people doing whole exome sequencing who had a, yeah, a bunch of variants and candidates and they wanted to use phenotype similarity to triage them. So eventually Peter Robertson, who's based at the Jackson Laboratory and myself, coded up the first version of Eximizer to automate this. And now Jules, who's a Java developer in my team has really sort of turned this into a robust or reusable open source framework. And what Eximizer does in essence is to take two inputs, a variant call format VCF file from a whole exome or whole genome sequencing experiment, and then the set of human phenotype ontology terms from deep phenotyping of the patient. So over on the left, it will perform the usual sort of variant filtering to produce a set of rare segregating pathogenic candidate variants. So it's removing common variants that are seen in NOMAD to higher frequency. It's removing variants that don't segregate with disease, for instance. But over here on the right, we take the patient's phenotypes and come up with a prioritized set of genes. And here we're using those semantic similarity algorithms. So we're comparing the patient's phenotypes to everything we know about human disease or from model organisms and then filling in the gaps using um, sort of guilt by association net network approaches and then eventually we integrate this information so we produce a final score and essentially what we're hoping is we end up with a single rare predicted pathogenic variant in a gene that's very phenotypically similar um, to what we see in the patients and we've published various sort of flavors of Eximizer over the years. So the original one was in genome research. But Peter and myself published a sort of how to use it guide in nature protocols. There's 
the Exane Walker, which is the interacting based version in bioinformatics. And then Phoenix was in science translation medicine. And in the early days, we did a lot of benchmarking, and this was using simulated whole exome sequences where we kind of spiked in known um, disease variants, where we knew what the variant was, obviously, and the disease and the phenotypes, and tested exomize for, for kind of how often it would get the right answer as the top it. And then in this perfect scenario, as we sort of predicted, it did very well. So nearly 100% of the time you get the, the correct variant and gene as the sort of top rank candidate when you feed, feed in a whole exome sequence and the phenotypes. But we we're also able to show it could discover novel disease genes. So we did this by kind of masking the known disease gene associations in the database and showing that it should be able to find between 50 and 70% of the time, the sort of no, uh, a novel disease gene is the top rank candidate. And this is just using the model organism and the protein-protein interaction data. And we then moved on to a quite a long relationship working with the NIH Undiagnosed Disease Program and Network. So this is nice. So we finally got to work on kind of real exomes and real genomes. So the first thing we did was this study and it was like very small scale looking back now on the 11 solved cases but managed to show that Examizer found the right diagnosis in the top 10 for all of them. And as the top candidate in more than half. And then we were able to go kind of exploring some of the unsolved cases. So this is one particular undiagnosed disease project patient where we kind of got a diagnosis at the top it. Um, so what Examizer sh showed was there was a kind of rare predictive pathogenic variant in spermine symphase, the SMS gene. So it's ranked really highly on the variant score because of that. But also the phenotype match was very nice for a mouse IMPC model that had knocked out this gene. So both the patient and the mouse model showed decreased bone mineral density. So osteopenia, as it's called in the human. And the, the patient was short and the mouse had decreased body length and there was decreased circulating glucose level phenotypes in both. And then we, by the time we got to 2015, there was already kind of several other phenotype tools out there. So myself and Peter managed to review them and sort of try and benchmark them in a, as far away as possible. Again, using simulated data, but trying to make it as realistic as possible and showing that kind of Examizer was the gold standard, at least back in 2015 compared to these other tools, but kind of other software such as Fever using in the fabric system also performs very well. And I think I mentioned before that Examizer is completely open source and will always remain so. So we've kind of done that to hopefully increase its uptake and we're kind of very happy to be recognized by the International Rare Disease Research Consortium, along with an, another, a number of other key resources. And we sort of play a sort of key role in the matchmaker exchange network that some of you may have come across. So kind of helping Phenem Central and the Matchbox from the Broad Institute sort of do some of the phenotype matching. And then finally, just to sort of mention, Examize has been used by a number of independent groups. I think there's more than sort of 20 odd sort of publications showing Examize have been used in the diagnostic setting or for discovery. So this is a fairly recent paper from the Children's Hospital in LA, and we kind of like this one because they just put together a really nice dragon variant calling and Examizer pipeline, and we're able to diagnose 28% of their singletons and 41% of their duos or larger families. And this was very fast, so they were managing to return results within a week. And Examizer was managing to find yeah, the actual diagnosis as the top ranked candidate for 72% of the cases, and 93% of them were in the top six. And one of the things I really like is yeah, for their diagnosis, they could spot it because it had been um, highlighted by Examizer, and this is before the actual disease association was published. So this is based on the mouse data or the protein-protein interaction data. So moving on to the 100,000 genomes projects. So, so to give some background to it, for those of you who don't know about this project, so the aim is obviously to sequence 100,000 whole genomes, but these came from patients of rare inherited disease or their family members, as well as cancer. And obviously the main aim for doing this was to bring benefit to these patients in our NHS 
in the UK, but also you know, to set up a research environment to sort of lead to further diagnosis, you know, to kickstart a UK genomics industry or to further kickstart it, and to sort of try and really prove that whole genome sequencing was a sensible approach in healthcare. So the project's actually completed now in terms of sequencing and sending results back to the NHS in the UK. So I should say that's our national health service for those of you who don't know. So we actually ended up sequencing well over 100,000 whole genomes. You'll see the majority of them actually came from the rare disease, which is slightly counterintuitive because you think they would be harder to recruit, but we were looking for fresh frozen cancer tissue and that's kind of harder than you think in the, the real world of sort of collecting biopsies. Um, results have pretty much been sent, this slide's slightly out of date, and we've sent results back to the NHS for nearly all of them now. And we're still waiting to hear whether there's a positive diagnosis on all of the cases. And all the data is made available to researchers in their research environment. So you can apply to become a member, get a login. And when you sort of log in, you get access to all the whole genome sequencing, sort of variant core format files, and you know, the BAM files, as well as the clinical data linked to it. So this includes human phenotype ontology terms, as well as a lot of other rich data. And there's a number of tools already installed that will kind of make your analysis easy, including a high performance compute cluster, but you can also use Docker to try and bring in your own software. And there's a lot of secondary health data that's been brought in. So for instance, you know, hospital episode statistics on some of the patients, um, mortality data, and then there's primary and secondary health records coming very soon now. And although the 100,000 Genomes Project is finished in the UK, this has led to a new NHS genomic medicine service. So this is like really whole genome sequencing being used in mainstream healthcare in the UK now. And then over the next five years, there's been a commitment by the government to look at the genomes of some 5 million people in the UK. So like half a million of these are going to come from this genomic medicine service. So sequencing people that have got rare disease. Another half a million whole genomes from sequencing participants in UK Biobank. And then the other ones come from sort of various other forms of genomic testing. So to go back to like start looking at some of the results from the 100,000 genomes project. So the first thing to understand is that sort of the primary pipeline is very much virtual panel based. So what I mean by this is for each recruited disease category, Genomics England has expert curated a set of genes that are definitely associated with that disease. So there's kind of compelling evidence from many families and they sort of do this using panel up to sort of crowdsource the curation. And what the pipeline then does, so for each um, family that have been recruited, there'll be a particular virtual panel that corresponds to their recruited disease category. And then you can run a bioinformatics pipeline looking for rare protein altering variants that are either in one of these genes or not, and also segregate appropriately within the family. So loss of function variants, protein truncating variants or de novo variants that are in one of these virtual panel genes are classified with the highest category of tier one. So these will be the most likely to lead to a diagnosis. Things like missense variants will be in one of these panel genes will be tier two, but all the other variants that pass the filters, but um, in genes outside the panels are still presented back to the NHS clinicians as tier three. And then tier null are the variants that fell this sort of filtering. But alongside this sort of panel-based pipeline, we do also have access to human phenotype ontology terms for each of the rare disease probands. And the reason we have this, so we've managed to collect a median of four positive and four negative HBO terms. It's right from the beginning, a system was built to collect this data. So essentially a questionnaire was built for each disease category, such as Allport syndrome, where you would ask the clinician for each of the main phenotypes that are associated with Allport syndrome, did the patient have it? So did they have protein urea or not? But also the clinicians are allowed to add extra terms. And this was like collected at the same time as sort of generating the pedigree for the family. And then there was some sort of feedback on the annotation sufficiency of the terms that were being entered. Um, 
So, oh, sorry, going back to this. So, because we had these human phenotype ontology terms, this allows us to, first of all, run Eximizer on all the cases. So, we have a complementary pipeline to the panel waste pipeline. It also allowed us to add some additional panels to each case, so as well as the one associated with the disease. If the human phenotype ontology term suggested other panels would be useful, these were also applied to the case. And I'm going to sort of switch gears a bit here to sort of present some of the results from the 100,000 Genomes Project pilot paper. So this is very much going to be like the landmark sort of marker paper for the rare disease side of the project. And we're hoping it will get accepted in New England Journal kind of any day now. But essentially what it does is then we sort of describe the results for this first 2,183 probands that form part of our pilot. And we find very similar results already for the whole project. The reason we're not reporting results on all of them at the moment is we don't have feedback from the NHS on every single case, whether it's a positive or a negative diagnosis. And there's not been as much research done looking for additional diagnosis on the other cases. But in terms of the cohorts, um, the sort of sex and the ethnicity distribution is very much as you'd expect from the UK. The only thing that's a bit askew is there's a lot more adult probands at paediatric probands, which is unusual for rare disease. And this just reflects what samples were available when the project was first started to recruit. So, yeah, whichever undiagnosed patients people had. And in terms of diagnostic yield, so when we looked at all 2,183 families in this cohort, so I should say this represents about 5,000 whole genome sequences, the diagnostic yield was 25%. And you're much more likely to get a diagnosis as you'd expect if you actually had a trio family where you'd sequence the parents, obviously the extra filtering power that gives you. Also, if the recruited disease category was likely monogenic versus likely complex, you're obviously more likely to get a diagnosis. And essentially, when you break this down into disease areas, so one of the differences between the 100,000 Genomes Projects and previous projects is it really tried to go across rare disease. It didn't sort of restrict to intellectual disability or developmental disorders. It sort of took all comers. So what you find when you look at the yield across different disease areas, so for things like hearing and the ophthalmology and the eye diseases, intellectual disability and the neurological diseases, yeah, the yields up above 40%. But for categories such as tumor syndromes, the diagnostic yields down around 5%. This is much harder to get a diagnosis in these cases. And there was actually 290 samples in this sort of tumor syndrome category. So you can see how that kind of reduced the overall diagnostic yield. And then looking at how the sort of bioinformatics automated pipeline was able to help in detecting these diagnoses. So just looking at the SMV diagnosis in this slide. So when we look at how often the diagnosis is actually present in that sort of disease virtual panel that was applied. So this 54% of the SMV diagnosis were detected in the disease panel. And when, when we look at all the applied panels, so these, this includes the extra panels that are added to each case based on the HPO terms, it increases to 77%. And then the precision is, or the positive predictive value is some 15%. So this means 15% of the variants that are detected actually led to a diagnosis, which is actually sort of pretty reasonable. But using Eximizer, the performance is similar when you're looking at the top ranked Eximizer candidate. So Eximizer identifies 77% of these diagnoses as the top hit with similar sort of precision to using panels. But with Eximizer, you could also sort of go out and look at the top three or the top five ranked candidates. And that increased the recall of diagnosis up to 88%. And the two approaches are actually complementary. So using panels and Eximizer, you can do even better and recall 92% of the diagnosis in a sort of automated pipeline that these you have just a handful of candidates for the clinicians to look at. And where we did misdiagnosis, this is because there are non-coding, so we weren't looking for non-coding variants in this flavor of the pipeline, or they were called as low quality, so we ignored them, or they were failed our minor allele frequency filters. And there are a few with sort of low scoring XMIZER matches outside the top five. 
And overall, in terms of sources of diagnosis in this pilot, 58% actually involve coding SMVs in the applied panels. A further 29% were coding SMVs in known disease genes, but outside the applied gene panels. So these were the ones found by Examizer or by manual review looking and by the diagnostic labs looking at these or some of the decision support companies such as Congenica and Fabric. And then 4% came from non-coding variants. So this was a combination of re yeah, in-depth research analysis looking at the promoter UTR and intronic regions in the eye cases in particular. Or Examizer does actually highlight known pathogenic non-coding Climbar variants that detected some of these non-coding diagnoses. And then finally, 9% involved structural variants. So we we're actually able to get structural variant calls from our whole genome sequencing. It can be a bit noisy. So we had this random forest classification of the Manta and Canvas calls, which highlighted the high quality ones. And we also used Expansion Hunter to look for short tandem repeat diagnosis in the HTT and FXX, FXN genes. And in terms of clinical utility, well, I mean, the biggest utility immediately is the fact you've ended the diagnostic odyssey and given the patient and their family members, yeah, kind of end to that sort of long, painful odyssey. And this lasted over around six years for the average patient. And it involved 68 hospital appointments from yeah, the first sort of sign that something was wrong to diagnosis. And we do sort of collect feedback at the time of the, the diagnostic report is issued. So for the majority, because it's early days, it's unknown sort of clinical utility, but for 24%, there was already some clinical utility reported or actionability. So like four of them, there was some change in medication that comes from a diagnosis. A lot, sort of 20 leads to additional surveillance for the relatives or the pro-band. A large number, 52, um, it informs on the future reproductive choices. So for instance, if it's it's a de novo, you know, you kind of can pretty much safely have another child and then unlikely to have the same disease and 13 were eligible for clinical trials. So, and then moving on to the final bit of my talk. So this is solving the unsolved cases. So we've coming to it, the end of the project, as I said, so we've got 36,000 rare disease families and we're predicting 20% of them will be solved through the sort of main pipeline. But that's going to leave us with some 80% or 29,000 families that are unsolved. So, a, yeah, a huge sort of chunk of data to deal with. And there's sort of a big headache for everyone. So, we're starting a research project where we're going to try and improve the situation. And we're looking to increase the diagnostic yield over the next few years to like 40% overall. And this is going to take four different strands. So, first of all, looking at coding SMVs in known genes. And then non-coding variants and structural variants in known genes, and then finally novel disease gene discovery. So starting with the sort of low-hanging fruit of looking for coding variants in known disease genes, we've already started to look at this in 24,000 unsolved cases. I'm trying to be fairly conservative, so running them through Examizer and a tool called Lyrical, I'll introduce in a second. Looking for de novo, loss of function or ClinVar pathogenic variants where Examizer or Lyrical says there's a high phenotype similarity between the proband and the known disease. And we can see from ACMG, if we classify this, the variant would be pathogenic or likely pathogenic. And from this experiment, we could, looks like we could get diagnosis for a further 6% of the unsolved cases. And there's some overlap between the two tools, but actually a lot of benefit from running them both. Yeah, because the intersection's not too big. So I promised I'd say what Lyrical was. So this is really the sort of driven by Peter Robinson again. I'm there as the last author, but I was really just there to sort of test things out on the 100,000 Genes project and provide feedback. So Lyrical works in a quite a different way from Examizer and it uses likelihood ratios for each of the phenotypes that match or don't match and the genotype. And these you can visualize these nicely on the output. So like green, and bars above the zero uh, sort of supporting evidence, red bars below the zero um, and non-supporting evidence. So you can very sort of quickly visualize whether it's compelling or not the evidence. 
and the likelihood ratios can be multiplied together to give you an overall likelihood ratio and the post-test probability that this really is the diagnosis for the patient. So it gives you much more sort of clear interpretation for cases. So the next strand of our research is going to be looking at the non-coding diagnosis. So the, one of the first things we're going to do is run genomizers. So this is a tool we published back in 2016. We've only just updated it to build 38, to be honest. So we're about to start this work. But genomizer works in a very similar way to Examizer, apart from we're obviously not filtering out the non-coding regions. And we also had a machine learning model sort of trained on some 400 literature curated non-coding variants. So we're able to prioritize likely non-coding causes of rare disease. Um, also looking at non-coding space, cryptic splice variants are probably going to be the easier, easiest ones to validate. So we've started looking at these already. So we've looked at 24,000 unsolved cases and we've run these using the Aximizer framework and a couple of tools for score identifying cryptic splice variants called splice AI and squirrels. So essentially we look for any interesting looking Aximizer candidates that have a reasonable score from these cryptic splice scorers and also where the gene is actually in the disease panel to be as conservative as possible and where it has the correct mode of inheritance and again through ACMG where it was classified as pathogenic or lightly pathogenic. And when we run this so Again, the intersection between the tools, two tools is not very high, so there's either good or bad news. And that would actually cover 42% of the unsolved cases. So there's obviously going to be a lot of false positives here, and we're going to have to validate these potential cryptic splice variants using transcriptomics. So we already have an experiment going on some 6,000 cases to try and validate these using transcriptomics. Um, just to say a bit about squirrels, because this is not, I think it's going to come out any day soon in the American Journal of Human Genetics and it's on BioArchive, but some of you might not have come across it. So it's another tool from Peter's group where he curated, did literature creation of some 8,000 splice variants and particularly some, I forget the number, some 800, I think, total cryptic splice variants that were in Climvar. But he really went in and sort of curated the literature to sort of check that these were definitely damaging. And then he collected a set of benign variants, and then there was a random forest machine learning training to, to try and separate the two. And this is a very busy slide, I'm not going to explain, but you get a sort of very nice output from squirrels that really explains why this particular variant has been suggested as a cryptic splice variant. And just to summarize, it's trained on information content features, so how often you see we predict to see particular bases at each position around the splice site and um, sequence context features. So like the offset from the donor and the acceptor site, for instance, and the exon length, and then software such as ESR seek scores and file AP and SMS. And there's all sorts of other non-coding approaches we want to sort of take to really try and help these unsolved patients get a diagnosis. So. Like I said, we're getting transcriptomics on some 6,000 cases. So there's all sorts of software out there that we can try and identify diagnosis just using the transcriptomic data. Um, there's collaborators that I've started working with that have got tools to look at five, five prime untranslated regions, such as Nikki Riffin in Oxford and Jenny Taylor also in Oxford. And then there's been some great papers from DDD looking at conserved non-coding elements and identify non-coding mutations in these. So that's another area that we'd like to kind of work on. Structural variants, I'm not gonna say much about. Um, obviously in our pilot paper, we showed 8% of the diagnosis came from structural variants. So yeah, it was a big source of potential extra diagnosis that have not really been looked at yet. And the next version of Examizer that should be released this summer is able to prioritize SMVs and structural variants together so that should help us identify more of these. And then to sort of finish up looking at novel disease gene discovery. So this is obviously the hardest approach, but kind of the most interesting because you discover a new disease gene. So one of the advantages of Examizer, we have all candidates based on mouse models or zebrafish models or protein-protein interactions. 
So we can screen all our Aximizer results in these unsolved cases. And then look at those ones where we've got the same gene coming up in three or more independent families. And then I've taken all those and used the ClinGen classification and protocol, try and say whether we've got strong, moderate or limited evidence for disease gene association so far. And as you can imagine, most of them are kind of in the limited or moderate evidence category at the moment. We need to collect more cases, find more segregation data or do some functional work. Actually, four of our 24 candidates already have some human evidence. And one came out recently as confirmed this VPS4A and an intellectual disability disorder. Um, another success story was um, just recently published, but we sort of detected this last year. So we noticed Examizer had detected rare predicted damaging de novo variants in this ANCAR D17 gene that wasn't associated with human disease at the time. And in all cases, it was an intellectual disability and it wasn't seen in any other 100,000 genomes project samples. So it looked promising and we discovered Examizer was prioritizing it based on protein-protein interactions with known intellectual disability disease genes. So then we reached out through Gene Matcher, discovered other people who had similar cases and that's kind of resulted in this paper that came out recently. And then finally, Valentina and Letizia and my team have been performing gene burden testing. So this, for this, we look at cases recruited on their particular disease, such as hereditary ataxia. And then we look for enrichment of particular variants in these cases versus controls. And here the controls are non-neurological cases from the 100,000 Genomes Project. And we break this down into like looking for loss of function enrichment or de novo variant enrichment or variants in these constrained coding regions or just variants that have a high Examizer variant score. And this is the Manhattan plot of the adjusted p-values and the ones in circles are sort of known disease genes showing the kind of approach works but we also picking up some novel associations above the threshold such as EML6 and UCHL1. Yeah, I can skip this. And overall, this detects some 835 potentially novel associations looking at the whole 100,000 genomes project. And we're just starting to sort of triage these, looking for ones that are more likely because yeah, none of the variants are observed in controls, for instance, or they fit with NOMAD and Hapler insufficient scores. And again, we're sort of ClinGen classifying them and then for the more sort of compelling ones looking to collect further cases or perform functional validation. And just to give you one example, so this is hereditary spastic paraplegia and UBAP1. So we noticed as soon as we did this burden testing that these rare segregating loss of function variants were seen in five of the HSP cases and only three controls. So there was a big enrichment. And it looked like a haploinsufficient gene from the NOMAD data. And so we were quite excited about it. Then there was like nice protein-protein interaction evidence also from Examizer. And as soon as we got excited, yeah, a paper came out from another team confirming this as an association, but we've managed to publish our cases as well recently. And then to finish up with on this strand, so Pilar Cachero in my team has developed a nice pipeline using human and mouse essentiality screens. So essentially what we can do here using these screens is categorize all our genes that have run through the IMPC pipeline into either cellular lethal or developmental lethal. The developmental lethal ones are the ones that are not lethal in human cell lines, but are lethal to a mouse. And then sub-viable, viable with phenotype and viable of no phenotype. And we were able to show that rare disease, yeah, Mendelian disease genes have massively enriched in this developmentally lethal fraction and build a pipeline for discovering new disease genes, bringing in sort of nomad data. And we have, in the paper, we described nine candidate genes. Already sort of two of them have been confirmed as new disease genes. And the further one, we we're kind of working together with people using gene matcher to, to sort of try and take it to publication. I'm almost finished now. So, so this is a lot of academic research, but I, yeah, obviously our team likes to produce tools that'll be useful for rare disease patients. And part of that is 
kind of making these tours available for to be run in by Genomics England and other large pipelines. So one of the things we've done is sort of build a kind of cloud type architecture service for Genomics England as part of their ISO accredited pipeline. So this can scale up nicely, run 250 cases per day for each node that you spin up and it just takes five minutes to process the whole genome sequence. And obviously as part of ISO accreditation, you have to run it on the same cases and show it recalls diagnosis kind of very effectively and the performance increases of each software release. Now I mentioned at the beginning, we're working for Congenica to produce a commercial version of Examizer. So this is for kind of diagnostic labs or other users that may need a kind of commercial accredited version of Examizer and some extra support and to make it easier to use for people that might struggle to install Examizer. So we've tried to make it as easy to use as possible. You sort of log in, upload your VCF file, enter some phenotypes and click a button and you can get your results. And then just to finish off with one mention of Fina packets that sort of Jules and my team and Peter Robinson have really pushed forward. So Examizer is only part of the solution here. There's a whole ecosystem of electronic health records and things like phenotypes, collecting HPO terms that we need to connect together with tools like Examizer. And Fina packets is the proposed global alliance solution to connect all these things together. And I'm just about over time. So with that, I'll finish. Thank people in my team at Queen Mary. So I kind of mentioned people as I went along, such as Jules, Pila, Valentina, and Leticia, but also Thomas and Aaron in my team. And the Monarch Initiative, there's a lot of people involved in this, the various grants that form the Monarch Initiative, particularly Peter Robinson and Daniel and his team, and Melissa Handel and Chris Mungle. Um, the 100,000 Genomes Project has got an enormous number of clinicians and patients and everyone that's come together to make that project happen, and also my colleagues in the IMPC. And with that, I think I can finish and take questions. Yes, thank you for thank you for that presentation. I think uh, we've had uh, several questions come in from uh, from the audience, so I will uh, uh, ask you some of those now. Um, the whole reanalysis of cases uh, without genetic diagnosis is genotype oriented. Do you think there is a place for re-phenotype based approaches as well? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, because, yeah, as you can imagine, of XMIs, it only sort of takes us like five minutes to run the analysis again. And actually, the phenotype part of that analysis runs in about 10 seconds. So it'd be kind of trivial for us if someone entered some new phenotypes that they know about the patient for us to rerun Examizer, potentially discover new causes. In practicality, when you've got a project such as the one Genomics England have run for the 100,000 Genomes Project and the new Genomic Medicine Service, actually collecting those new HPO terms is kind of hard to do. Yeah, things end up in a quite a linear pipeline where you, unfortunately you get a chance to collect the HPO terms at the beginning, kind of correcting that and adding new ones in at the end is pretty tr tricky. I kind of agree it would make a big difference, especially in the neonatal sort of scenario where yeah, the phenotypes might have changed completely by the time you're a year down the line. Yeah, certainly that's uh, uh, that would be an interesting uh, also project to look to see um, uh, what diagnostic impact that would have with just changing the phenotype but not changing any of the other uh, yeah. parameters related to uh, phenotype disease associations. Um, yeah, so one thing we've got is like some of the electronic health record data that's coming in on these patients since they're recruited, so kind of hospital visits, so we might be able to pull out some information from that. Uh, so we have another question from the audience um, reading. I'm curious if there is a number of phenotypes at which diagnostic yield plateaus. The more phenotypes provided to the lab, the better, but is there a minimum number of phenotypes needed for interpretation? Yeah, I mean, as you can imagine, like lots of people have thought about this and wanted a sort of quick and easy answer. And we did sort of, yeah, as part of that pilot paper, we sort of looked at the number of HPO terms that they entered or the annotation sufficiency. 
it's essentially like a number of confounding factors. So depending on the recruited disease category, you'll be more or less likely to get HPO terms or, and then for some recruited disease categories, you're more likely to get trios, which made it easier. So basically what happened once you remove those confounding factors, like the number of samples got quite small, but certainly for intellectual disability, we sort of showed essentially the more HPO terms you entered, the more likely you were to get a diagnosis, but it definitely kind of plateaus quite quickly after say three or four HPO terms. Does and obviously it depends on the quality as well. Of course. Does does Eximizer have uh or, or is there a way to I guess prioritize phenotypes in terms of being potentially more uh I guess diagnostically uh relevant uh than not? No, I mean we don't do that in Eximizer per se, but yeah we've definitely had lots of conversations about how yeah, how to help sort of tools like phenotips. Yeah, the people that are actually entering the HPO terms using something like phenotips or in our open clinica system that we use in the 100,000 Genomes Project, try and at that stage encourage them to enter good HPO terms. But yeah, I mean, I think it'd be much, yeah, going back to that first question, it'd be much nicer to sort of let people tweak the HPO terms at the end as well. Right. Um, in terms of, you also mentioned that eight percent of diagnosis as part of the project came from structural variants. Uh, do you think the current algorithms sort of work well with some of the more complex structural variants? And where are the limitations uh, of the current algorithms, especially in you know in some, uh, perhaps not so much in the rare disease space, but in some cancers, you would have SVs and CNVs occurring simultaneously with some quite complex uh, structures. Um, so, what are the I guess the limitations of, of detection? With the current algorithms. Yeah, I mean, there's kind of limitations all over the place. I think, first of all, with the structural variant callers, you know, I'm not an expert on how they work, but yeah, when you, especially when you're doing short read sequencing, yeah, when you look at the whole genome sequence that's been called by the structural variant callers, it looks like the person has cancer, you know, this SM, this insertions, deletions, CMVs all over the place that you know cannot be true. There's so many false positives. So that's the first challenge to kind of try and weed some of those out. Yeah, and then there's the interpretation challenge. So yeah, I mean, today, I think most of us have just looked at the easy challenges like a, the whole gene deletion or whole gene gain. But I think, yeah, things like structural variants that are taking out an enhancer or a topological domain that brings an enhancer closer to another gene. Yeah, I mean, I don't think any of us have got the software to really do this yet. Hmm. On one of your slides, uh, I guess you were summarizing the uh, also the number of patients uh, that had drug therapy available to them after diagnosis, and you had, it was showing 15%. Was that 15% of the roughly quarter of patients that ended up having a diagnosis, or 15 of the uh, entire, uh, entire uh, group there? Yeah, I mean, sorry, I skipped over that. So this was like a very much a sort of bioinformatics type of analysis to look at all the diagnosed genes and then look at drug databases and then just to establish like how many of them had a potential drug that could work in terms of like, you know, going in the right direction, the inhibitor for the right variant. So it's 15%, but that's yeah, very much an optimistic estimate of how many of those drugs would really work. We just we just know there's a drug in the database that affects that gene in the right direction. Mm. Yeah, we've not really gone any further than that. Um, going back to Eximizer, um, so variable expressivity seems to be a problem. Uh, we have an audience member who's curious to hear about your thoughts on using frequency weighted HPO terms and whether that's feasible. Yeah, so I think actually sort of. Okay, so I'll start on Lyrical actually, because I didn't really explain Lyrical in full detail. So one of the nice things about Lyrical is it does take that into account. So those likelihood ratios it's displaying are looking at how often that phenotype is observed in patients with that disease versus all rare disease patients that are known. So that was kind of nice, it takes it into account. And we do have annotations of the HPO term frequencies for particular diseases but Eximizer is not making use of those at the moment. I mean, it's certainly stuff, something I've experimented with in the past. And 
we kind of want to do it properly. When I experimented before, it didn't work very well in my hands, but I was taking quite a simplistic approach. I think the way Lyrical's doing it, using a Bayesian approach is probably better. Um, which, this is an interesting question, which model organism do you think is the most valuable uh, for the genotype phenotype correlation research in terms of clinical impact uh, for on human disease? Yeah, I mean, we've, I mean, we've certainly not looked at all the model organisms, but we certainly see that, yeah, the mass, human mass phenotype matches, recall, you can do like rock curves looking at sort of known human disease genes and whether you can recall that information just using the mass data or fish data and other species. And certainly the mass data performs the best. That could be because of our ontologies and our mappings as well. It might, it might not necessarily mean the mass is a better model organism, but I mean, I think a lot of people would tend to assume, yeah, the mass is going to be closer for most diseases than the zebrafish, but yeah, it's a lot quicker and easier to make a zebrafish model as well. And then for, I know Monica working on particular tools, yeah, for, if you take a set of phenotypes or certain disease to sort of suggest which model organism might be the best one to use. Yeah, so obviously fish is going to be a good model for certain diseases, but terrible for others and similar for mass, but um, yeah. For the for the most phenotyping consortium, how did you end up prioritizing the I guess the first seven thousand or so knockout genes? Yeah, so there was definitely at the beginning, and they were like deliberately trying to avoid disease genes. Yeah, they wanted to go after the sort of dark genome, so the the genes that there's no experimental evidence in the literature or the gene ontology database. And then more recently, there's been a lot more collaboration with disease sequencing projects especially like the Centers for Mendelian Genomics and UDP, mm. sort of try and produce models that help them. So they're using CRISPR technology and quite often they can make a CRISPR point mutation and a whole knockout together in the same experiment. So yeah, the, the number of known disease genes has definitely been rising in the, in the yeah. agency. And CRISPR has certainly made it easier to, do, to make, uh, uh, you know, alterations in larger genes than those that were more difficult to yeah. Uh, yeah, too. but there's definitely a lot, a lot of debate on the next phase of IMPC, what to concentrate and which set of genes to concentrate on next. What are your thoughts on uh, sort of the methylome as the next frontier in rare disease diagnosis and genome interpretation? I mean, I definitely will hold my hands up and say I'm not an expert on methylation, but I've, yeah, I've obviously been to presentations and seen people presenting sort of nice data that it's going to really help us a lot. I mean, if we could afford to do some of our 100,000 genomes project samples and do a methylome, that'd be really nice to explore. Yeah, I mean, it's not something I've explored myself, so I'm not able to say, oh, I think it's going to solve 5% of cases or, mm. yeah, I mean, I think we're just starting a transcriptomics first because it's the most obvious one to do next after whole genome sequencing. Mm. And in terms of the 100,000 Genomes Project, do you know if there was a, there was a percentage of patients, I presume, that had gone in with, with, a, with a diagnosis already? Um, do you know what percentage of those came out with a change in their diagnosis? Yeah, I mean, so the idea is, in theory, they're all meant to be undiagnosed. And a lot of them had had like prior genetic testing, quite extensive testing. But obviously the reality was because you know, things took a long time to set up, they got a diagnosis in the meantime. I'm not sure anyone's done that experiment. Actually, it'd be interesting to see how many have received two different diagnoses and whether the 100,000 Genomes Project has corrected the diagnosis or not. But yeah, be, yeah, we would definitely try to exclude anyone who was meant to have a diagnosis. So I don't think we're going to have a lot of that data. Well, I think that's that's sort of all the time we have for for questions. Um, and, and just a little bit of housekeeping. Once the webinar ends, uh, you'll see uh, a feedback link in your browser. Please take a minute to uh, offer your feedback on this episode. You'll also receive um, an email uh, with a feedback link in case you, you missed the one uh, that gets presented right after we end the webinar. 
Uh, the email will also include information about our upcoming uh, webinar speaker series on July 14th, the role of open EHR in transforming patient care with Dr. Shane McKee, who once tried to set up a phenotype server on a Raspberry Pi. Um, you can ask him about that if you join the webinar. Um, you'll also be able to link to the Phenotype Speaker Series page where you can sign up uh, to receive alerts on upcoming sessions and view past sessions on demand. At Phenotypes, we're passionate about transforming genetics workflows through the use of technology. We're developing tools for deep phenotyping and phenotype-powered genetic analysis, as well as many other tools uh, targeted towards helping genetics professionals with their clinical workflows. If you have a challenge that you're trying to solve right now, or you're working towards making your department more efficient, we'd love to chat. You can come and speak uh, to us one-on-one -on -one, uh, after this uh, webinar is over, or reach out to us at hello at phenotips.com. Uh, as I mentioned, we'll be around for a few minutes after the end of this webinar. Uh, in case you have any questions about phenotypes or about uh, this speaker series. Uh, again, please remember to tune in to our next webinar, The Role of Open EHR in Transforming Patient Care on June 14th. And once again, a uh, heartwell thank you to Dr. Smedley and everyone who tuned in today. Take care.